I live very frugally. So yeah. like the way that I dress, I'll always wear thrift store clothes, whether I'm mm-hmm. making six figures or not. Mm-hmm. But I actually, the pants that I'm wearing right now are joggers that I bought off of Groupon in my sophomore oh year my of God. college. So <laughs> these are old pants, but I just, I just keep wearing them. They're That's comfy. So they're warm. Funny. As much as I like my other clothes, the same, the clothes I wear all the time are the apparel from Japanese auto tech. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just all my brothers. And I'm like, this is a bare bones sweater, which is an auto shop in the back. Like, mm-hmm. You you fluctuate between like very like trendy stuff and then also big sweaters. <laughs> Basically like grunge is the best way to say it. And then like, I want to be a hot bitch. It's like the mm-hmm. next day. Alert to anybody who didn't know, we live in a world where we exchange money for goods and services. I don't know if you knew that, but... You have to pay for stuff. I'm glad you called uh, it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, we're out here trying to speak the truth, Gene. I think most people, though, spend most of their time thinking about money as spending it in terms of, you know, trying to make rent or they're trying to buy a laptop or make monthly payments on their car or something. Most of the time that you spend thinking about money is thinking about spending it. Mm-hmm. But especially for people who are self-employed, but even if you're working a salary job, like you do need to think at least once a year about like asking for money Mm -hmm. and like the earning money process. Mm -hmm. I guess in the example of working a job, you would be negotiating for a raise Mm -hmm. or you would be talking about what your salary is if you're in a job interview. Mm -hmm. If you're a, a freelancer or a small business, you're like, trying to make sales and trying to set the prices for your store or you're trying to ask for a certain amount for your invoice for a service that you're providing. Mm -hmm. So even though it doesn't seem like it, we ask for money a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I mean, theoretically, as much as we're asking to spend it. Even in like daily life, when you have to Venmo your friends, you're asking them, how do you want to split it? So like between, you know, your job of asking for money and then just in your daily life, it's common practice. We just don't really think about it but once you put a little bit more conscious thought into it you're like how do i ask for money and how do i like determine what i'm owed and how things should be split today we're going to be talking about how to ask for money and ways that you can reflect on your financial and monetary worth hey everybody i'm calvin and i'm Jean. and this is 27 a podcast about growing up So, Mr. Calvin, I'm like, do you want to hop into it and just talk about what your salary was before coming on to Studio DBJ land? Yeah, I I mean, I think it's really important to talk about your salary, especially in like previous generations. There was this instinct to hold it really close to the chest and not really show your cards on how much you were making, either because it's bragging or Mm -hmm. it's asking for charity or something. Mm -hmm. But it is super important to like talk to people about how much you're making, especially if you're in the same field, Mm -hmm. just because it reduces the risk of feeling like you're unclear on whether people who are doing more than you or the same work as you are Mm -hmm. getting paid the same as you. And Mm -hmm. it kind of exposes inequities in pay between people of different races or people in different companies or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think you find that once people start talking about their salaries, you start to see gaps and weird trends arising. Oh, yeah you need to know what's happening in reality versus what you google on the internet just because Mm -hmm. on the internet like glassdoor can say a graphic designer only makes 
$36,000 and then you're like, I don't want to be a graphic designer, but it, there's just so much more than just Glassdoor and what like LinkedIn says on a salary chart. What are you actually doing? And like, does that salary actually fit you? And especially those LinkedIn and Glassdoor websites, they don't take into account where you're living mm-hmm. or the size of the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could take that all into account, but I think they have so little data that they just kind of have to give a flat average on like the 10 data points that they have, yeah. as opposed to telling you like, oh, if you live in LA and you work at a design firm with less than 50 people, then this mm-hmm. is a pretty decent salary. Yeah. No, it's just like, if you work in design, your average salary is 60000 It's like, yeah. good luck. Yeah, and you're like, and you know, especially when you go to try to negotiate with your boss, you're like, Glassdoor says I should be getting paid, you know, $70,000. And then your boss is just going to look at you like, dude, you're at a small firm. Like, mm-hmm. you're not going to make that much. If you want that much, you have to go to a big company. Like, there's so many things that go into salaries that make it so difficult. And especially how you talked about benefits, like that mm-hmm. also plays into is your salary lower? You know, taxes also play into whether your salary is lowered or not. By the way, salary also reminder, you guys, there's also a difference in like your yearly salary. If you get paid a salary, if you're, or if you're paid hourly and like you get OT and all that stuff, like there's so many things that just go into what really make the real amount you make versus the paper amount you make. When I started, I was getting paid yearly around like 34,000, right? Which is not a good amount not at all for living in LA and like supporting a family like that is Mm -hmm. I was like scraping by I was left with maybe like 200 in my bank account at the end of every month which is why I also started freelancing on the side so after I freelance it kind of bumped me up to around like 40 and then I got a raise but then I reduced my hourly at the studio so that I can both freelance and work around 32 hours a week so I Mm -hmm. was going between 34 then bounced to like 40 something and then i was like back at like a 32 something which is very not sustainable in la mm-hmm. and then did you get bonuses at your old job or i was, was about it... to say yeah so i got bonuses and there were some benefits but i wasn't so clear about what all the benefits were but you know some of it was like percentages in the business itself but you didn't get that until you left the business or they decide to close the account and you know there were healthcare benefits and all that good stuff which is why you know having those conversations about salary is really important because that's not just the one paycheck you get there's so many mm-hmm. things that account for a total paycheck yearly i was getting paid around 30,000 plus but then with the bonus my taxes at the end of the year would round up to around 50 all of that 30,000 was like where did it go and what does making 50 actually mean in a salary and it's like well if you make 50 it only really feels like 20 because expenses and by the time that bonus came in it was to pay off other things that had accumulated throughout the year i never felt like i even got a bonus because we had to use it for other things when you are living paycheck to paycheck it is difficult to get a bonus and then feel like it isn't just sort of compensating for that time that you were paycheck to paycheck as opposed to money that like you earned Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah most people live paycheck to paycheck and you Mm -hmm. know you still have to be very mindful about how you spend your paycheck to paycheck because with providing for the fam bam and all that good stuff i was still putting away like okay fifty dollars for savings like at least something it's like the action and the principle that really matters versus the actual Mm. amount you put in some months i was just like i'll just put in five bucks because i just need to know that i'm putting something in savings going through a few years of that i was like 
dude, if I'm going to be struggling like this, I'm going to start my own business. <laughs> I think at this point, you all know, I used to work in engineering. When I first finished my master's degree and I got my first job, I was working as a entry level design engineer um, at a small firm and I was making 59K a year with benefits. The benefits didn't kick in until six months after mm -hmm. I was working there and I didn't work there for six months, so I never got benefits. <laughs> uh, when I switched jobs, I got a like a really small, almost imperceptible raise uh, to 61K a mm -hmm. year with much better benefits. Within that second company that I worked at, I got a raise and a promotion to project engineer where I made 67K a year mm -hmm. with the same benefits um, and then I left. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, when you were like hired, how did you set that number? So first they were gonna pay me an hourly of 10 when I first, uh, I know. <laughs> I'm like, we're getting, we're, we're opening up the whole laundry basket right now. Um, so when I was first hired on, they hired me on as an intern. Let's be clear. I was hired on as an intern. They offered me 10. I had asked for 12. And then they're like, mm -hmm. okay, that's fine. And then after 12, for a few months, I think I felt like I was making more when I was paid 12 because I wasn't getting all the tax deductions out from benefits and I was getting paid OT. So if I had worked more, I felt like I was actually making the amount that I worked. When I transitioned into salary, it was great to know that I got a set amount per month, but it kind of sucked when it felt like you weren't really paid the full amount you worked because mm -hmm. of especially all when you're working a late night oh yeah when you're working a late night or things like that so you know she went from 12 dollars to i think 18 dollars, and then i moved to mm -hmm. 22 dollars an hour where i i mm -hmm. think i last left i was like sorry i lost my train of thought what was the big question mr calvin it was how did you negotiate your numbers oh okay so <clears throat> Honestly, I never really negotiated my hours because I was just happy to be getting $22 an hour. Also because I was freelancing on the side, so I was like, okay, I can, you know, I can make this work for me. It wasn't until I was talking to one of my other friends who works at a big agency and I was like, wait, how much do you make? And she's like, I make 70, I'm going on to 80. And I was like, mm -hmm. hold on, what do you mean you're going on to 80? Like, I need, I need more information about this. And so when mm -hmm. I told her how much I was making, she was just like, hold on, like, what are you doing? And so that's what kind of clicked for me. I guess I never like thought to negotiate hourly rate there because it just never felt like an option because mm -hmm. I was so worried about not having a job. A few months down the line when I texted you on the like 110 freeway, where I was like, if I'm gonna be making this little amount and also, you know, struggling through late nights, I'm gonna start my own business. And then mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, what kind of set sailed from there. For me, I know that we just shit on it earlier, but I did literally do a glass door, like online average salary <laughs> check for what I should be asking for. And that was my process. Mm -hmm. I had very little information going into engineering. I honestly wasn't super plugged into the engineering like community in school. Mm -hmm. I was so sort of spread out with like my interests and my involvement in college. It literally everywhere except for my major. So I didn't have a lot of friends in structural engineering. I had a couple, but um, they were also like having trouble finding work or finishing up their master's degrees or something. So I didn't have a lot of info. So literally all that I had was 
Glassdoor. <laughs> and then when it came to like getting the next job and like sort of making that lateral shift into another position, I was just so, like you said, I was just so happy to like get another job mm -hmm. and like be in a place that felt more, more aligned with what I wanted to do. When they asked me like, what are you thinking for salary? I was like, literally the same as fun yeah <laughs> like which is not what you yeah. say right like that's the stupidest thing but mm -hmm. i was just like yeah around the same would be cool <laughs> and then um when i got promoted that was sort of a surprise like mm -hmm. i wasn't gunning for a promotion i was i honestly didn't feel like i was doing great within my job which is sort of a bad omen of like things to come in terms of like the way that my anxiety affected mm -hmm. me at my job i didn't have in my head that I was ready or like in line for a promotion. So mm -hmm. when I got it, I was like, oh, okay, cool. The number doesn't matter. It's a bigger number. Mm -hmm. When I went from 61 or 62 to 67, I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Don't really need to say much about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's my sort of salary yeah. journey. Yeah. Uh, I didn't negotiate. I never negotiated really. Yeah. No, I feel you on the whole, like, you feel like you're not doing a good job at your job. So it mm -hmm. makes you wonder like, should I even negotiate my salary or my hourly? And you kind of negotiate yourself and you're like, well, if I do better on this project, I will think about asking my boss for more money. And then the project comes and you're like, well, I feel like I messed up on it. Like I shouldn't ask for more money, you know? Like that was kind of a thing. And at least for me, I always felt like one, I lived far from where I was working previously and I was always showing up late because I was either on the way late from like pulling an all-nighter or just stuck in some really insane traffic. I was like, well, if I can actually get to work on time, I will try to negotiate for either less time at work to shorten my hours so I can freelance on the side. It took me like a year and a half to be able to ask that because I kept showing up late and then I realized I just mm -hmm. need to ask. Um, but I was always too afraid to bring up hourly with her because I wasn't sure, am I doing a good enough of a job to even have this kind of conversation? I want to point out some similarities between our stories because I think they are really similar despite the fact that we were in two different fields. Number one, we were working in small offices. Number two, we didn't feel like we were doing a good job <laughs> <laughs> with what we were doing. And number three, we were we were just kind of happy to be there mm -hmm. as opposed to like really thinking about the long term. Mm -hmm. And I think that all sort of stems from the same thing, which is that we weren't able to have conversations about our salaries with other people and like compare what we were doing, how we were doing and mm -hmm. how much we were doing mm -hmm. to other people around us. Mm -hmm. Because I had no context for if I was overworking myself oh, yeah. or if I was making an appropriate number of mistakes. Mm -hmm. It was just like me and two people who knew more than me. So I was like, I have no idea mm -hmm. if I'm doing a good job. I'm just glad to be here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't I think you were in a similar situation, right? Yeah, because I wasn't sure if, again, like if I was doing a good enough job and then I was just happy to be there after, you know, like six applications of rejections, you know, you're just like, I'm stoked to be at this job. And then I just, I just want to be here forever, basically. And then I guess uh, to kind of close out the salary talk, what was the biggest factor for you that like led you to saying like salary isn't really working for me i guess mm -hmm. you t talked about it a little bit but yeah. uh, i guess reiterating mm -hmm. i was like that's kind of tough actually because i i talked about it where i'm like if i'm gonna be making this much i might as well start my own business but there's so much more to that the you know like the wonderful age of 27 where you're like where do you see yourself at 27 and at the rate this salary that i'm working at is not really driving my growth it's just driving my survival method each month. 
you know, right. and I don't have the financial capability or the financial confidence to risk it to grow more. And so as I was sitting on that 110 freeway in traffic, I was like, am I going to be doing this every day past 27? I'm only risking $36,000, which sounds really bizarre to say, but you're like, I'm only risking $36,000 and, you know, some some good old health benefits. But is that really a lot to lose when you could be making a bigger life decision? And so that's kind of what drove me to say the salary is not cutting it anymore and it's really time to make a jump. For me, and I had talked about this a little bit either, I forget if it was on our trailer or on our first episode about boundaries. There was a period in time where we were, we had too much to handle, mm-hmm. but like we were trying to make up for it within um, our team. And I was realizing that if left to my own devices, I would just work myself into a rut. Mm-hmm. And that if I didn't have the flexibility to like, the flexibility and the comfort to like make my voice more heard, that I was just going to be unhappy. And that mm-hmm. like, I would be overworking myself, sort of what we were talking about before. Like I was going to eat up my own time in mm-hmm. the future and my own like ability to feel comfortable and happy Mm -hmm. that it just wasn't going to be worth it for me in the long run Mm -hmm. which sucks because like honestly that salary one of my friends and I had had a conversation about this which is like what is the salary with which you are pretty cool like Mm -hmm. you're pretty happy and you can like do whatever that you feel comfortable with and I was like you know what honestly it's probably like 70 to 80k with benefits Mm -hmm. and like that's that's like pretty that's that's pretty pretty good. good yeah at that point, you don't really need to worry about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've heard this, like, I guess, qualitative metric for mm-hmm. like different levels of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was three. The ability to order food without looking at the price. Mm-hmm. Like that's like a, a pretty basic level of wealth where it's like you can just get food and not have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Being able to get gifts for people and not having to worry about it, like mm-hmm. the price, mm-hmm. uh, which is like the second level. I don't think I've ever reached that level. And then the third level is being able to travel without worrying about price. Mm -hmm. And like, these are more like human metrics firm numbers because you could say like, oh, I want to make six figures. Yeah. But what do six figures mean? Yeah. Like six figures to me is like that second level. It Mm -hmm. means that you can buy gifts for your friends or for yourself and not have to worry about the price. Mm -hmm. And then like for me, that level was like 80, 60 to 80, which is like, you know, you can buy food and not have to worry about the price of the food. And Mm -hmm. like, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. What I was realizing was that level of comfort was nice but it meant that i was also over overworking myself yeah, no like you just kind of end up like really negotiating yourself with rewards and you're like well if i continue working at this job and i make 70k a year i'm gonna take myself on that one vacation i always want to go on right and you're like mm-hmm. that that's fine like that makes it good enough for me and that means i'm okay but then in the long run you start to realize that you put yourself in this cycle that's just not healthy and you know it's how do i say it because like even now for me i like my tax returns with everything is still around like the same that i was at the studio i was at before same cycling through and everything but i'm just so much happier now because it doesn't feel like it's survival it feels Mm -hmm. like we're putting it into grow something and it's a risk that we're taking that's you can see the value coming in in the long run right with both of us working at dbj there is like an investment that wasn't present with where we were at before right Mm -hmm. it sounds self-deprecating but it's it's just sort of the truth is that like we weren't willing to put the work into doing like what we needed to do there Mm -hmm. and that's and we just acknowledge that and we're honest with ourselves about that Mm -hmm. like 
people can do this, but not me. I don't want to. Yeah. yeah. I want to do this for me. Yeah. I want to do something for me. And mm-hmm. that's what we're both doing right now. Kind of like disclaimer, where I was like, this doesn't reflect poorly on the places that we worked at all. Like, I don't want people to feel like we're shitting on the places that we worked. It's like, no, they really helped us become who we are right now. Mm-hmm. And having this kind of conversation is like really healthy and needed versus like people complaining about the workload that they take on. It's like, no, let's talk about your salary. And is that workload that you're taking on relative to the salary you're getting paid, plus the benefits and everything that is put into it so like or taken out of it like taxes and all that good stuff what we wanted for ourselves and what they wanted out of the people in our position were different Mm -hmm. and that's that's it like that's fine Mm -hmm. it's not that they were asking too much or that we were underperforming it's just that it wasn't an alignment of like what we saw as the job and what they saw Mm -hmm. as the job that's it yeah that dovetails pretty nicely into our next topic, mm-hmm. which is before we were asking a boss for how much we were worth. Mm-hmm. And now we have to ask every client that we work with to give us an amount based on what we think our work is worth. Yeah. So Jean, I want to ask you, like when you started DBJ, mm-hmm. what was your process for asking for money? Mm-hmm. The process for asking money when first starting with DBJ was the method of faking it till you make it was kind of like the first approach. I think if you're in the gig industry, you hear a lot of sayings like whatever you charge times two plus 300 or charge what you think you're worth. And you're like, but what am I worth? And they're like, well, charge, I charge $100 an hour. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, there's so many things that kind of get thrown out there where it just sounds like a very toxic hustle culture. So when Studio DBJ started out, it was in that kind of route where I was like, if I just charge a higher price tag, the potential client would be confident in me. And I was going on an hourly of like 30 an hour, and this will be a 10 hour job and, you know, going down that route. Currently, Studio DBJ's process for asking money is understanding. Like we take time to understand our clients first because we want to know exactly what they need from us. And I think by going down that route before even giving them a quote makes them understand that like one, this is a different level of experience that they're getting versus hiring like another studio or hiring a different freelancer. Like we're already setting the tone, which is very important when you negotiate. And then we've put into practice and made a system on how to actually quote for a project where we quote at 70 an hour, right? And we have set types of projects that we worked on. And even with those set types of project, it has different scenarios of like, they are low budget, but they need X, Y, Z. And so we're able to move it around, which goes into our catered experience. And really that's how now we've been able to, I feel like master asking for money. I guess sort of to get into the the brass tacks of a practical description of our process is we work, we operate mostly on an hourly rate in terms of how we provide the quote, but we treat the quote itself as a lump sum. Mm-hmm. So we'll say that this project is a 10 hour project at let's say $50. So it'd be a $500, mm-hmm. $500 yeah. project. I had to check my math really quick. <laughs> Um, but if we went into 12 hours by accident or we went under into eight hours, we wouldn't charge them less yeah. or we wouldn't like charge them more. Mm-hmm. It would just be, we would treat it as a lump sum. So yeah. like, that's the number that they're paying, mm-hmm. which puts a little bit more responsibility on us. Yeah. But we're sort of moving, like Jean said, more into a lump sum environment mm-hmm. where we kind of have a feeling for like, 
oh, a website design costs this much versus、mm-hmm. a light brand costs this much and a heavy brand costs、mm-hmm. this much. Yeah. So、um, it's sort of a hybrid right now. Yeah. We're kind of like an auto shop where if you go in for an oil change, there's a set rate that an oil change is going to cost you. And it doesn't matter if the mechanic finishes it in 30 minutes or two hours. As a customer,、mm-hmm. you're still going to pay for like the $75 it is to get an oil change. And it's kind of like the same way we operate, where it's really up to us to make sure we hold ourselves accountable to it. But、mm. we keep in mind the client, like, this is what we promise you and the value of the work we promise you. So we're not going to under deliver. And if we over deliver, like, that's kind of like a bonus for you. We're not going to charge for that. Like, do you want to tell us about a time when quoting was challenging for you and like when you had to pivot? This actually happened really, really recently,、uh, like literally a week ago from recording this, because Studio DBJ was working on an RFP, a request for proposal for a pretty big project that had a pretty tight timeline. That was a situation where we had to sort of negotiate our hourly within ourselves between me and Gene、mm-hmm. to what we feel comfortable quoting for something that is like on a really tight timeline、mm-hmm. where we have to be like on it with project management. The expectation was to complete two and a half websites within the span of three months,、mm-hmm. not including the holidays. So it's like、yeah. less than three months.、Yeah. And plus branding. Gene and I had like the long, hard discussion of saying, like, if we pretty much work on this website full time, like, what would it take for us to feel comfortable doing that?、Mm-hmm. And we, a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of math and a lot of arguing、yeah. about like what number feels right. With this.、Mm-hmm. And like over the course of two days, we were sort of struggling with this challenge of what our worth is essentially、mm-hmm. and like what the worth of other projects we could have in this time is.、Mm-hmm. We landed on something that felt more elegant, but like kind of took a long time to get there. Yeah. I was g o n n a say the funny part about that conversation was one, we had provided two options in this RFP, you know,、mm-hmm. one that Was within a comfortable timeline for us, but outside of what the RFP had requested. And this kind of ties back into the previous episode or two episodes ago about you just gotta tell them what you want, which is we wanna work on this project and we want a longer timeline because we know、mm-hmm. you're gonna want a smaller, you know, a smaller cost on this. But if you wanna meet your timeline, that means we're gonna push the timeline that we're gonna work on it for you. So we need a higher budget for this project. During our whole discussion, I was telling Calvin if we take this project on to meet their timeline, like DBJ needs to be able to go on a vacation after. I don't want to work to death on this project. Like, I, wanna, I want us to have like a healthy life. So,、mm-hmm. if we do go on this project, the following month we have to like treat ourselves a little bit so that you know, we can recover and reset and all that good stuff because I know it's going to、mm-hmm. take a toll on us. Okay, so flipping this back on to Gene and making it more relevant to our freelancer audience, what would you say is a good starting point for setting a rate or、mm-hmm. quoting a project?、Mm-hmm. For setting a rate as a freelancer, one, it really depends on, I don't want to say expertise because it's like a、mm-hmm. weird thing, but really your, like your vouched experience is the best way to say it. You know, how many clients have you worked with before and the complexity of it within the clientele that you've worked with? How much of a hands on experience do you actually have in managing that clientele? Because,、mm-hmm. you know, we've worked with folks who have like five years' experience, but they don't know how to handle anything except for design. A lot of those things really tie into the rate you want to quote because you're going to have to be responsible for that value that you promise them. If you're in college, most folks start at like an hourly of 25,、mm-hmm. right? And then when you're going out of college, an entry level freelancer starts around like 
30 to 45. The higher you go up, you know, the more you're promising them in the value that you can deliver, but also the vouched experience you have. Like, do you have any awards? Are your clientele friends and family only, or are the actual businesses outside living their best life in the world? The typical thing that a lot of people do is they'll say like, oh, that's what everybody else's numbers are. Let's do that with my numbers too. Mm -hmm. um, pay your bills. Figure out the available time you have to work every week and then how much your bills come out to, whether mm -hmm. that's programs, rent, um, food, mm -hmm. all that stuff. And then just use those two numbers, like that cost and that amount of hours, just to see what your base rate needs to be. If that's high, if that's 100 or 80 per hour, then maybe consider getting a part-time job to help cover some of those costs so mm -hmm. that you can bring your rate down to be more competitive mm -hmm. into that 20 to 40 range. Yeah. The first priority for setting your rate should be getting your bills paid. And then the next thing you should consider is, am I being compensated fairly? Mm -hmm. You don't want to think you're worth too little that you don't not even meeting your bills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to like assess some stuff if that's the situation long-term thinking like going into freelancing is first like you know getting your bills paid and the ideal amount you want to make you know that maybe your first year you're not going to be making a profit like you're just going to be breaking even enough to get through because freelancing is definitely a long game mindset like it's not a short game quick turnaround i want to make money there is that sector and then there's another sector of gig work where it's like i'm building longevity for my career and the quality of life I want to live. What I'm planning for isn't for me tomorrow, it's for me in three years. And the thing I also want to push forward is like, if you are a mid-level freelance designer and you're like, my hourly is 70 an hour, like break it down and see why it's 70 an hour. It's coming a lot from your operation expenses versus your profit expenses. You might need to actually renegotiate yourself to see like, should I actually lower my personal expenses and my operational expenses so that I can get a higher profit amount when I do quote at 70? Because that really, I think, affects, um, affects the quality of work you want because it a different stress level on you you're like i have to quote at 70 to make 2k a month to be able to feed myself and you know that's gonna not really open your doorway to negotiate pricing or like i even think to quote at like a good headspace it's a big step into finding money versus just making money you know like you have mm -hmm. to find the money and then once you get that footing better then it's like you know, upping your level on like, what does it mean to actually get a higher rate and what supports that higher rate versus my operational expenses? It's like our high rate is because like we have two awards, we have really great reviews, we have legacy clientele, like that makes it worth it for a client to see that you're going to be $100 an hour. Like we said, numbers would be if you're really like at the start between 20 and 40, mm -hmm. depending on how comfortable you feel and depending on your costs. If you want to drive those numbers up, things that might you might want to consider is if you're doing web design or web development, if it's something that's specialized, mm -hmm. that's definitely something that you could push numbers a little higher mm -hmm. on. If you can work really quickly or mm -hmm. if you um, have sort of what people call an unfair advantage uh, with the thing that you're doing, mm -hmm. that's definitely a reason. As long as you can back it up mm -hmm. with proof or with people who yeah. you've worked with who can vouch for you. Like Jean said, yeah. it's vouched experience that really drives your, yeah. your rate mm -hmm. up. Oh, um, yeah. Before you even drive up or down your rate, like you have to think competitively, like you're not the only freelancer in the world and also you're not the only agency in the world. So like keep in mind about 
what kind of clientele you want and like what pool you're swimming in to see you know who you're really competing against and this kind of ties into another rfp that we were gonna submit on and we were talking amongst ourselves where like if we were going to go in for this client at this rate we have to understand we're competing against agencies that one are our colleagues but two they not only have the vouch experience they have like the legacy behind them and can we compete in that and like is it worth it for us to put our time into into that rfp or even like trying to drive down our rate or drive up our rate for it this is just a general thing that i want to talk about uh i I feel like it's really important especially in the the gig economy Mm -hmm. is just like the idea i guess of decommodifying yourself like as much as me and gene make fun of hustle culture and like i think most people have started to make fun of hustle culture it is still really prevalent in a lot of our lives in Mm -hmm. a way that is not immediately apparent it doesn't necessarily mean that you're posting motivational memes on instagram that say i'll sleep when i die like Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily hustle culture hustle culture shows up in different ways um one thing that i get really worked up about is when people preach their um instagram brands and they say like oh like i would post that on my instagram but it's you know it doesn't fit the brand it doesn't fit like what i my aesthetic i I, i'm much more understanding if somebody says my aesthetic Mm -hmm. because that's art terminology but if you're saying my brand that's commodity terminology that's like marketing terminology and i hate it because i don't think that people um especially on their personal pages should be trying to sell themselves Mm -hmm. Uh, and that kind of extends into freelancing as well is if you like graphic design and you have a full-time job like consider just keeping it a hobby mm-hmm. and consider just like doing it for fun because if 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 you know you're not living paycheck to paycheck and you don't need the passive income because i think it's really valuable to keep a part of your life that is not for sale that you are not trying to sell or like make profitable or uh, market to people mm-hmm. because i don't know i think when you spend your life at your full-time job trying to be productive and then in your resting quote unquote resting hours trying to be productive by like making art that people will buy or by making designs that people will use it like takes away a lot of your ability to just like chill and like (laughs) like, like, enjoy life honestly like enjoy your time enjoy yourself and like be in the moment you're working to put money in the in the safe to put money in your coffers and then you're once you die it's just like you have a big safe full of money and you didn't you didn't do anything with it Mm -hmm. which is i mean cool if if uh inheritance laws uh, are pretty lax then maybe you can pass it on to your kids but like you should you should enjoy your life and you should do things that make you happy not because Mm -hmm. they are making you money Mm -hmm. that was really well said mr calvin I, i i just hate it i hate when people have brands on instagram i'm not shitting on people who have a style or an aesthetic Mm -hmm. or a look that they aspire to. I think that Instagram is a creative outlet and I think it's cool to have ways to express yourself creatively. I push back on when people say that they have a brand because it is marketing terminology. I don't like people thinking about themselves and their creativity and stuff as a product unless Mm -hmm. that's what unless they're designers or unless that's like what they're trying to do. They're influencers. Mm -hmm. So if you have a personal page it's cool to have an aesthetic. It's cool to have, I like to take my photos this way, but I think that the, the second you call it a brand, I like, I don't like that. <laughs> That's it. You can call it a style all you want. That's totally cool. Yeah. Use art words, don't use marketing words. Like you wouldn't call your hangout an activation, right? Like yeah. that sucks. <laughs> Keep it fun. Like don't just, don't say that 
you're not engaging your audience. You're just hanging so out with your friends. Funny. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> if you're going to have something that you do on the side, like a side hustle, just try to find the line between like creating a passive income source, mm-hmm. which is you know the positive side to it, and then the negative side is working all the time. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much wraps up everything that we were going to say. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you want to listen to our episodes or share them. Our show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts uh, and leave reviews wherever you're able to. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Jean for our last prompt before we say goodbye. To close out this episode, the prompt for this topic is referring back to what Calvin had talked about for the three levels of wealth. You know, assess if your goal is really to like buy food without looking at money, buy gifts for your friends or for just buying things without looking at the price tag or is it to travel and like really think about like what's really important to you for your salary does it really align and kind of use that as your gauge or if you're a freelancer on like does that align with what you're trying to do for jumping into freelancing and also like is freelancing the right option for you all right well thank you everybody um bye bye you hear the baby one voice (laughs) 